This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. Public Domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London Chapter 30 No wonder we called it Endeavor Island. For two weeks we toiled at building a hut. Maud insisted on helping, and I could have wept over her bruised and bleeding hands. And still I was proud of her because of it. There was something heroic about this gently bred woman enduring our terrible hardship and with her pittance of strength bending to the tasks of a peasant woman. She gathered many of the stones which I built into the walls of the hut. Also, she turned a deaf ear to my entreaties when I begged her to desist. She compromised, however, by taking upon herself the lighter labors of cooking and gathering driftwood and moss for our winter supply. The hut's walls rose without difficulty, and everything went smoothly until the problem of the roof confronted me. 
of what use the four walls without a roof? And of what could a roof be made? There were the spare oars, very true. They would serve as roof beams, but with what was I to cover them? Moss would never do. Tundra grass was impracticable. We needed the sail for the boat, and the tarpaulin had begun to leak. Winters used walrus skins on his hut, I said. There are the seals, she suggested. So next day the hunting began. I did not know how to shoot, but I proceeded to learn, and when I had expended some thirty shells for three seals, I decided that the ammunition would be exhausted before I acquired the necessary knowledge. I had used eight shells for lighting fires before I hit upon the device of banking the embers with wet moss, and there remained not over a hundred shells in the box. We must club the seals, I announced, when convinced of my poor marksmanship. I have heard the sealers talk about clubbing them. They are so pretty, she objected. I cannot bear to think of it being done. It is so directly brutal, you know, so different from shooting them. That roof must go on, I answered grimly. Winter is almost here. It is our lives against theirs. It is unfortunate that we haven't plenty of ammunition, but I think anyway that they suffer less from being clubbed than from being all shot up. Besides, I shall do the clubbing. That's just it, she began eagerly and broke off in sudden confusion. Of course, I began, if you prefer... But what shall I be doing, she interrupted, with that softness I knew full well to be insistence, gathering firewood and cooking dinner. I answered lightly. She shook her head. It is too dangerous for you to attempt alone. I know, I know, she waved my protest. I am only a weak woman, but just my small assistance may enable you to escape disaster. But the clubbing? I suggested. Of course you will do that. I shall probably scream. I'll look away when... The danger is most serious? I laughed. I shall use my judgment when to look and when not to look, she replied with a grand air. The upshot of the affair was that she accompanied me next morning. I rode into the adjoining cove and up to the edge of the beach. There were seals all about us in the water, and the bellowing thousands on the beach compelled us to shout at each other to make ourselves heard. I know men club them. I said, trying to reassure myself, and gazing doubtfully at a large bull not thirty feet away, upreared on his foreflippers, and regarding me intently. But the question is, how do they club them? Let us gather tundra grass and thatch the roof, Maud said. She was as frightened as I at the prospect, and we had reason to be, gazing at close range at the gleaming teeth and dog-like mouths. I always thought they were afraid of men, I said. How do I know they are not afraid? I queried a moment later, after having rowed a few more strokes along the beach. Perhaps if I were to step boldly ashore, they would cut for it, and I could not catch up with one. And still I hesitated. I heard of a man once who invaded the nesting grounds of wild geese, Maud said. They killed him. The geese? Yes, the geese. My brother told me about it when I was a little girl. 
But I know men club them, I persisted. I think the tundra grass will make just as good a roof, she said. Far from her intention, her words were maddening me, driving me on. I could not play the coward before her eyes. Here goes, I said, backing water with one oar and running the bow ashore. I stepped out and advanced valiantly upon a long-maned bull in the midst of his wives. I was armed with the regular club with which the boat pullers killed the wounded seals gaffed aboard by the hunters. It was only a foot and a half long, and in my superb ignorance I never dreamed that the club used ashore when raiding the rookeries measured four to five feet. The cows lumbered out of my way, and the distance between me and the bull decreased. He raised himself on his flippers with an angry movement. We were a dozen feet apart. Still, I advanced steadily, looking for him to turn tail at any moment and run. At six feet, the panicky thought rushed into my mind, what if he will not run? Why, then I shall club him, came the answer. In my fear, I had forgotten that I was there to get the bull, instead of to make him run. And just then, he gave a snort and a snarl and rushed at me. His eyes were blazing, his mouth was wide open, the teeth gleamed cruelly white. Without shame, I confess that it was I who turned and footed it. He ran awkwardly, but he ran well. He was but two paces behind when I tumbled into the boat, and as I shoved off with an oar, his teeth crunched down on the blade. The stout wood was crushed like an eggshell. Maud and I were astounded. A moment later, he had dived under the boat, seized the keel in his mouth, and was shaking the boat violently. My, said Maud, let's go back. I shook my head. I can do what other men have done, and I know that other men have clubbed seals, but I think I'll leave the bulls alone next time. I wish you wouldn't, she said. Now don't say please, please, I cried. Half angrily, I do believe. She made no reply, and I knew my tone must have hurt her. I beg your pardon, I said, or shouted, rather, in order to make myself heard over the roar of the rookery. If you say so, I'll turn and go back, but honestly, I'd rather stay. Now, don't say that this is what you get for bringing a woman along, she said. She smiled at me whimsically gloriously, and I knew there was no need for forgiveness. I rode a couple of hundred feet along the beach so as to recover my nerves, and then stepped ashore again. Do be cautious, she called after me. I nodded my head and proceeded to make a flank attack on the nearest harem. All went well until I aimed a blow at an outlying cow's head and fell short. She snorted and tried to scramble away. I ran in close and struck another blow, hitting the shoulder instead of the head. Watch out! I heard Maud scream. In my excitement, I had not been taking notice of other things, and I looked up to see the Lord of the Harem charging down upon me. Again I fled to the boat, hotly pursued, but this time Maud made no suggestion of turning back. It would be better, I imagine, if you let harems alone and devoted your attention to lonely and inoffensive-looking seals, was what she said. I think I have read something about them, 
Dr. Jordan's book, I believe. They are the young bulls not old enough to have harems of their own. He called them the Hollis Chicky, or something like that. It seems to me, if we were to find where they haul out, it seems to me that your fighting instinct is aroused, I laughed. She flushed, quickly and prettily. I'll admit, I don't like defeat any more than you do, or any more than I like the idea of killing such pretty, inoffensive creatures. Pretty, I sniffed. I failed to mark anything preeminently pretty about those foamy-mouthed beasts that raced me. Your point of view, she laughed. You lack perspective. Now, if you did not have to get so close to the subject... The very thing, I cried. What I need is a longer club. And there's that broken oar, ready to hand. It just comes to me, she said, that Captain Larson was telling me how the men raided the rookeries. They drive the seals in small herds a short distance inland before they kill them. I don't care to undertake the herding of one of those harems, I objected. But there are the Hollis Chicky, she said. The Hollis Chicky haul out by themselves, and Dr. Jordan says that paths are left between the harems, and that as long as the Hollis Chicky keeps strictly to the path, they are unmolested by the masters of the harem. There's one now, I said, pointing to a young bull in the water. Let's watch him and follow him if he hauls out. He swam directly to the beach and clambered out into a small opening between two harems, the masters of which made warning noises but did not attack him. We watched him travel slowly inward, threading about among the harems along what must have been the path. Here goes, I said, stepping out. But I confess my heart was in my mouth as I thought of going through the heart of that monstrous herd. It would be wise to make the boat fast, Maud said. She had stepped out beside me, and I regarded her with wonderment. She nodded her head determinedly. Yes, I'm going with you, so you may as well secure the boat and arm me with a club. Let's go back, I said dejectedly. I think tundra grass will do after all. You know it won't, was her reply. Shall I lead? With a shrug of the shoulders, but with the warmest admiration and pride at heart for this woman, I equipped her with the broken oar and took another for myself. It was with nervous trepidation that we made the first few rods of the journey. Once Maud screamed in terror as a cow thrust an inquisitive nose toward her foot, and several times I quickened my pace for the same reason. But beyond warning coughs from either side, there were no signs of hostility. It was a rookery which had never been raided by the hunters, and in consequence the seals were mild-tempered and at the same time unafraid. In the very heart of the herd, the din was terrific. It was almost dizzying in its effect. I paused and smiled reassuringly at Maud, for I had recovered my equanimity sooner than she. I could see that she was still badly frightened. She came close to me and shouted, I'm dreadfully afraid. And I was not. Though the novelty had not yet worn off, the peaceful comportment of the seals had quieted my alarm. Maud was trembling. I'm afraid, and I'm not afraid, she chattered with shaking jaws. 
It's my miserable body, not I. It's all right, it's all right, I reassured her, my arm passing instinctively and protectingly around her. I shall never forget in that moment how instantly conscious I became of my manhood. The primitive deeps of my nature stirred. I felt myself masculine, the protector of the weak, the fighting male. And, best of all, I felt myself the protector of my loved one. She leaned against me, so light and lily frail, and as her trembling eased away, it seemed as though I became aware of prodigious strength. I felt myself a match for the most ferocious bull in the herd, and I know had such a bull charged upon me that I should have met it unflinchingly and quite coolly, and I know that I should have killed it. I am all right now, she said, looking up at me gratefully. Let us go on. And that the strength in me had quieted her and given her confidence filled me with an exultant joy. The youth of the race seemed burgeoning in me over-civilized man that I was, and I lived for myself the old hunting days and forest nights of my remote and forgotten ancestry. I had much for which to thank Wolf Larsen, was my thought as we went along the path between the jostling harems. A quarter of a mile inland we came upon the Hollis Chickie, sleek young bulls living out the loneliness of their bachelorhood and gathering strength against the day when they would fight their way into the ranks of the Benedicts. Everything now went smoothly. I seemed to know just what to do and how to do it. Shouting, making threatening gestures with my club, and even prodding the lazy ones, I quickly cut out a score of the young bachelors from their companions. Whenever one made an attempt to break back toward the water, I headed it off. Maud took an active part in the drive, and with her cries and flourishings of the broken oar, was of considerable assistance. I noticed, though, that whenever one looked tired and laggard, she let it slip past. But I noticed also whenever one, with a show of fight, tried to break past, that her eyes glinted and showed bright, and she wrapped it smartly with her club. My, it's exciting, she cried, pausing from sheer weakness. I think I'll sit down. I drove the little herd, a dozen strong now, one of the escapes she had permitted, a hundred yards farther on, and by the time she joined me, I had finished the slaughter and was beginning to skin. An hour later, we went proudly back along the path between the harems. And twice again we came down the path burdened with skins, till I thought we had enough to roof the hut. I set the sail, laid one tack out of the cove, and on the other tack made our own little inner cove. It's just like homecoming, Maud said as I ran the boat ashore. I heard her words with a responsive thrill that was all so dearly intimate and natural, and I said... It seems as though I have lived this life always. The world of books and bookish folk is very vague, more like a dream memory than an actuality. I surely have hunted and forayed and fought all the days of my life. And you too seem a part of it. You are, I was on the verge of saying, my woman, my mate, but glibly changed it to standing the hardship well. But her ear had caught the flaw. 
She recognized a flight that midmost broke. She gave me a quick look. Not that, you were saying? That the American Mrs. Meinel was living the life of a savage and living it quite successfully, I said easily. Oh, was all she replied, but I could have sworn there was a note of disappointment in her voice. But my woman, my mate, kept ringing in my head for the rest of the day, and for many days. Yet never did it ring more loudly than that night, as I watched her draw back the blanket of moss from the coals, blow up the fire, and cook the evening meal. It must have been latent savagery stirring in me, for the old words so bound up with the roots of the race to grip me and thrill me. And grip and thrill they did till I fell asleep, murmuring them to myself over and over again. End of chapter 30 The Sea Wolf by Jack London Chapter 31 It will smell, I said, but it will keep in the heat and keep out the rain and snow. We were surveying the completed sealskin roof. It is clumsy, but it will serve the purpose, and that is the main thing, I went on, yearning for her praise. And she clapped her hands and declared that she was hugely pleased. But it is dark in here she said the next moment, her shoulders shrinking with a little involuntary shiver. You might have suggested a window when the walls were going up, I said. It was for you, and you should have seen the need of a window. But I never do see the obvious, you know, she laughed back. And besides, you can knock a hole in the wall at any time. Quite true. I had not thought of it. I replied, wagging my head sagely. But have you thought of ordering the window glass? Just call up the firm, Red 4451, I think it is, and tell them what size and kind of a glass you wish. That means, she began, no window. It was a dark and evil appearing thing, that hut, not fit for aught better than swine in a civilized land. But for us, who had known the misery of the open boat, it was a snug little habitation. Following the housewarming, which was accomplished by means of seal oil and a wick made from cotton caulking, came the hunting for our winter's meat and the building of the second hut. It was a simple affair now to go forth in the morning and return by noon with a boatload of seals. And then, while I worked at building the hut, Maud tried out the oil from the blubber and kept a slow fire under the frames of meat. I had heard of jerking beef on the plains, and our seal meat cut in thin strips and hung in the smoke cured excellently. The second hut was easier to erect, for I built it against the first and only three walls were required. But it was work, hard work, all of it. Maud and I worked from dawn till dark to the limit of our strength, so that when night came we crawled stiffly to bed and slept the animal-like sleep of exhaustion. And yet Maud declared that she had never felt better or stronger in her life. I knew this was true of myself, but hers was such a lily strength that I feared she would break down. Often and often, her last reserve force gone, I have seen her stretched flat on her back on the sand in the way she had of resting and recuperating and then she would be up on her feet and toiling hard as ever. Where she obtained this strength was the marvel to me. 
Think of the long rest this winter, was her reply to my remonstrances, while we'll be clamorous for something to do. We held a housewarming in my hut the night it was roofed. It was the end of the third day of a fierce storm which had swung around the compass from the southeast to the northwest, and which was then blowing directly in upon us. The beaches of the outer cove were thundering with the surf, and even in our landlocked inner cove a respectable sea was breaking. No high backbone of island sheltered us from the wind, and it whistled and bellowed about the hut, till at times I feared for the strength of the walls. The skin roof, stretched tightly as a drumhead I had thought, sagged and bellied with every gust, and innumerable interstices in the walls, not so tightly stuffed with moss as Maud had supposed, disclosed themselves. Yet the seal oil burned brightly, and we were warm and comfortable. It was a pleasant evening indeed, and we voted that, as a social function on Endeavor Island, it had not yet been eclipsed. Our minds were at ease. Not only had we resigned ourselves to the bitter winter, but we were prepared for it. The seals could depart on their mysterious journey into the south at any time now, for all we cared, and the storms held no terror for us. Not only were we sure of being dry and warm and sheltered from the wind, but we had the softest and most luxurious mattresses that could be made from moss. This had been Maud's idea, and she had herself jealously gathered all the moss. This was to be my first night on the mattress, and I knew I should sleep the sweeter because she had made it. As she rose to go, she turned to me with the whimsical way she had, and said, Something is going to happen, is happening, for that matter. I feel it. Something is coming here, to us. It is coming now. I don't know what it is, but it is coming. Good or bad? I asked. She shook her head. I don't know, but it is there, somewhere. She pointed in the direction of the sea and wind. It's a lee shore, I laughed, and I am sure I'd rather be here than arriving on a night like this. You are not frightened? I asked, as I stepped to open the door for her. Her eyes looked bravely into mine. And you feel well, perfectly well? Never better, was her answer. We talked a little while longer before she went. Good night, Maud, I said. Good night, Humphrey, she said. The use of our given names had come about quite as a matter of course, and was as unpremeditated as it was natural. In that moment, I could have put my arms around her and drawn her to me. I should certainly have done so out in that world in which we belonged. As it was, the situation stopped there in the only way it could. But I was left alone in my little hut, glowing warmly through and through with a pleasant satisfaction. And I knew that a tie, or a tacit something, existed between us which had not existed before. End of chapter 31 Public Domain The Sea Wolf by Jack London Chapter 32 I awoke oppressed by a mysterious sensation. There seemed something missing in my environment. But the mystery and oppressiveness vanished after the first few seconds of waking, when I identified the missing something as the wind. 
I had fallen asleep in that state of nerve tension with which one meets the continuous shock of sound or movement, and I had awakened, still tense, bracing myself to meet the pressure of something which no longer bore upon me. It was the first night I had spent under cover in several months, and I lay luxuriously for some minutes under my blankets, for once not wet with fog or spray, analyzing, first, the effect produced upon me by the cessation of the wind, and next, the joy which was mine from resting on the mattress made by Maud's hands. When I had dressed and opened the door, I heard the waves still lapping on the beach, garrulously attesting the fury of the night. It was a clear day and the sun was shining. I had slept late, and I stepped outside with sudden energy, bent upon making up lost time, as befitted a dweller on Endeavor Island. And when outside, I stopped short. I believed my eyes without question, and yet I was for the moment stunned by what they disclosed to me. There on the beach, not fifty feet away, bow on, dismasted, was a black-hulled vessel. Masts and booms, tangled with shrouds, sheets, and rent canvas, were rubbing gently alongside. I could have rubbed my eyes as I looked. There was the homemade galley we had built, the familiar break of the poop, the low yacht cabin scarcely rising above the rail. It was the ghost. What freak of fortune had brought it here? Here, of all spots. What chance of chances? I looked at the bleak, inaccessible wall at my back and know the profundity of despair. Escape was hopeless, out of the question. I thought of Maud, asleep there in the hut we had reared. I remembered her, good night, Humphrey. My woman, my mate, went ringing through my brain. But now, alas, it was a knell that sounded. Then everything went black before my eyes. Possibly it was the fraction of a second, but I had no knowledge of how long an interval had lapsed before I was myself again. There lay the ghost, bow on to the beach, her splintered bowsprit projecting over the sand, her tangled spars rubbing against her side to the lift of the crooning waves. Something must be done, must be done. It came upon me suddenly as strange that nothing moved aboard. Wearied from the night of struggle and wreck, all hands were yet asleep, I thought. My next thought was that Maud and I might yet escape. If we could take to the boat and make round the point before anyone awoke, I would call her and start. My hand was lifted at the door to knock when I recollected the smallness of the island. We could never hide ourselves upon it. There was nothing for us but the wide raw ocean. I thought of our snug little huts, our supplies of meat and oil and moss and firewood, and I knew that we could never survive the wintry sea and the great storms which were to come. So I stood with hesitant knuckle without her door. It was impossible, impossible. A wild thought of rushing in and killing her as she slept rose in my mind. And then, in a flash, the better solution came to me. All hands were asleep. 
why not creep aboard the ghost well i knew the way to wolf larsen's bunk and kill him in his sleep after that well we would see but with him dead there was time and space in which to prepare to do other things and besides whatever new situation arose it could not possibly be worse than the present one my knife was at my hip i returned to my hut for the shotgun made sure it was loaded and went down to the ghost with some difficulty and at the expense of a wetting to the waist i climbed aboard the forecastle scuttle was open i paused to listen for the breathing of the men but there was no breathing i almost gasped as the thought came to me what if the ghost is deserted i listened more closely there was no sound i cautiously descended the ladder the place had the empty and musty feel and smell usual to a dwelling no longer inhabited everywhere was a thick litter of discarded and ragged garments old sea boots leaky oilskins all the worthless forecastle dunnage of a long voyage abandoned hastily was my conclusion as i ascended to the deck hope was alive again in my breast and i looked about me with greater coolness i noted that the boats were missing the steerage told the same tale as the forecastle the hunters had packed their belongings with similar haste the ghost was deserted it was maud's and mine i thought of the ship's stores and the lazarette beneath the cabin and the idea came to me of surprising maud with something nice for breakfast the reaction from my fear and the knowledge that the terrible deed i had come to do was no longer necessary made me boyish and eager i went up the steerage companionway two steps at a time with nothing distinct in my mind except joy and the hope that maud would sleep on until the surprise breakfast was quite ready for her as i rounded the galley a new satisfaction was mine at thought of all the splendid cooking utensils inside I sprang up the break of the poop and saw Wolf Larsen. What of my impetus and the stunning surprise, I clattered three or four steps along the deck before I could stop myself. He was standing in the companionway, only his head and shoulders visible, staring straight at me. His arms were resting on the half-open slide. He made no movement whatever, simply stood there staring at me. I began to tremble. The old stomach sickness clutched me. I put one hand on the edge of the house to steady myself. My lips seemed suddenly dry and I moistened them against the need for speech. Nor did I for an instant take my eyes off him. Neither of us spoke. There was something ominous in his silence, his immobility. All my old fear of him returned and my new fear was increased a hundredfold. And still we stood, the pair of us, staring at each other. I was aware of the demand for action, and, my old helplessness strong upon me, I was waiting for him to take the initiative. Then, as the moments went by, it came to me that the situation was analogous to the one in which I had approached the long-maned bull, my intention of clubbing obscured by fear until it became a desire to make him run. So it was at last impressed upon me that I was there not to have Wolf Larsen take the initiative, but to take it myself. I cocked both barrels and leveled the shotgun at him. 
Had he moved, attempted to drop down the companionway, I know I would have shot him. But he stood motionless and staring as before. And as I faced him with leveled gun shaking in my hands, I had time to note the worn and haggard appearance of his face. It was as if some strong anxiety had wasted it. His cheeks were sunken, and there was a wearied, puckered expression on the brow. And it seemed to me that his eyes were strange. Not only the expression, but the physical, seeming as though the optic nerves and supporting muscles had suffered strain and slightly twisted the eyeballs. All this I saw, and my brain, now working rapidly, I thought a thousand thoughts, and yet I could not pull the triggers. I lowered the gun and stepped to the corner of the cabin, primarily to relieve the tension on my nerves and to make a new start, and, incidentally, to be closer. Again I raised the gun. He was almost at arm's length. There was no hope for him. I was resolved. There was no possible chance of missing him, no matter how poor my marksmanship. And yet, I wrestled with myself and could not pull the triggers. Well? He demanded impatiently. I strove vainly to force my fingers down on the triggers, and vainly I strove to say something. Why don't you shoot? He asked. I cleared my throat of a huskiness which prevented speech. Hump, he said slowly, you can't do it. You are not exactly afraid, you are impotent. Your conventional morality is stronger than you. You are the slave to the opinions which have credence among the people you have known and have read about. Their code has been drummed into your head from the time you lisped. And in spite of your philosophy, and of what I have taught you, it won't let you kill an unarmed, unresisting man. I know it, I said hoarsely. And you know that I would kill an unarmed man as readily as I would smoke a cigar, he went on. And you know me for what I am, my worth in the world by your standard. You have called me snake, tiger, shark, monster, and caliban. And yet, you little rag puppet, you little echoing mechanism, you are unable to kill me as you would a snake or a shark, because I have hands, feet, and a body shaped somewhat like yours. Bah! I had hoped better things of you, hon. He stepped out of the companionway and came up to me. Put down that gun. I want to ask you some questions. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. What place is this? How is the ghost lying? How did you get wet? Where's Maud? I beg your pardon, Miss Brewster, or should I say, Mrs. Van Wade? I had backed away from him, almost weeping at my inability to shoot him, but not fool enough to put down the gun. I hoped desperately that he might commit some hostile act, attempt to strike me or choke me, for in such way only I knew I could be stirred to shoot. This is Endeavor Island, I said. Never heard of it. He broke in. At least, that's our name for it, I amended. Our? He queried. Who's our? Miss Brewster and myself. And the ghost is lying, as you can see for yourself, bow onto the beach. There are seals here, he said. They woke me up with their barking or I'd be sleeping yet. I heard them when I drove in last night. They were the first warning that I was on a leash yard. It's a rookery, 
The kind of thing I've hunted for years. Thanks to my brother Death, I've lighted on a fortune. It's a mint. What's its bearings? Haven't the slightest idea, I said. But you ought to know quite closely. What were your last observations? He smiled inscrutably, but did not answer. Well, where's all hands? I asked. How does it come that you are alone? I was prepared for him again to set aside my question, and was surprised at the readiness of his reply. My brother got me inside 48 hours and through no fault of mine. Boarded me in the night with only the watch on deck. Hunters went back on me. He gave them a bigger lay. Heard him offering it. Did it right before me. Of course, the crew gave me the go-by. That was to be expected. All hands went over the side, and there I was, marooned on my own vessel. It was death's turn, and it's all in the family anyway. But how did you lose the masts? I asked. Walk over and examine those lanyards, he said, pointing to where the mizzen rigging should have been. They have been cut with a knife, I exclaimed. Not quite, he laughed. It was a neater job. Look again. I looked. The lanyards had been almost severed, with just enough left to hold the shrouds till some severe strain should be put upon them. Cookie did that. <laughs> he laughed again. I know, though I didn't spot him at it. Kind of evened up the score a bit. Good for Mugridge, I cried. Yes, that's what I thought when everything went over the side. Only I said it on the other side of my mouth. But what were you doing while all this was going on? I asked. My best, you may be sure, which wasn't much under the circumstances. I turned to re-examine Thomas Mugridge's work. I guess I'll sit down and take the sunshine, I heard Wolf Larsen saying. There was a hint, just a slight hint, of physical feebleness in his voice, and it was so strange that I looked quickly at him. His hand was sweeping nervously across his face as though he were brushing away cobwebs. I was puzzled. The whole thing was so unlike the Wolf Larsen I had known. How are your headaches? I asked. They still trouble me, was his answer. I think I have one coming on now. He slipped down from his sitting posture till he lay on the deck. Then he rolled over on his side, his head resting on the biceps of the underarm, the forearm shielding his eyes from the sun. I stood regarding him wonderingly. Now's your chance, hump, he said. I don't understand. I lied, for I thoroughly understood. Oh, nothing, he added softly, as if he were drowsing. Only, you've got me where you want me. No, I haven't, I retorted, for I want you a thousand miles away from here. He chuckled, and thereafter spoke no more. He did not stir as I passed by him and went down into the cabin. I lifted the trap in the floor, but for some moments gazed dubiously into the darkness of the lazarette beneath. I hesitated to descend. One of his lying down were a ruse. Pretty indeed to be caught there like a rat. I crept softly up to the companionway and peeped at him. He was lying as I had left him. Again I went below, but before I dropped into the lazarette, I took the precaution of casting down the door in advance. At least there would be no lid to the trap. But it was all needless. I regained the cabin with a store of jams, sea biscuits, canned meats, and such things, all I could carry, and replaced the trapdoor. A peep at Wolf Larsen showed me that he had not moved. 
A bright thought struck me. I stole into his stateroom and possessed myself of his revolvers. There were no other weapons, though I thoroughly ransacked the three remaining staterooms. To make sure, I returned and went through the steerage and forecastle, and in the galley gathered up all the sharp meat and vegetable knives. Then I bethought me of the great yachtsman's knife he always carried, and I came to him and spoke to him, first softly, then loudly. He did not move. I bent over and took it from his pocket. I breathed more freely. He had no arms with which to attack me from a distance, while I, armed, could always forestall him should he attempt to grapple me with his terrible gorilla arms. Filling a coffee pot and frying pan with part of my plunder, and taking some chinaware from the cabin pantry, I left Wolf Larsen lying in the sun and went ashore. Maud was still asleep. I blew up the embers, we had not yet arranged a winter kitchen, and quite feverishly cooked the breakfast. Toward the end, I heard her moving about within the hut, making her toilet. Just as all was ready and the coffee poured, the door opened and she came forth. It's not fair of you, was her greeting. You are usurping one of my prerogatives. You know you and I agreed that the cooking should be mine, and... But just this once, I pleaded. If you promise not to do it again, she smiled. Unless, of course, you have grown tired of my poor efforts. To my delight, she never once looked toward the beach. And I maintained the banter with such success. All unconsciously, she sipped coffee from the china cup, ate fried evaporated potatoes, and spread marmalade on her biscuit. But it could not last. I saw the surprise that came over her. She had discovered the china plate from which she was eating. She looked over the breakfast, noting detail after detail. Then she looked at me, and her face turned slowly toward the beach. Humphrey, she said, the old unnameable terror mounted into her eyes. Is he? She quavered. I nodded my head. End of chapter 32